Hi, and welcome to Quid Pros Quo. I'm Zach. And I'm Rin. And today we are taking a little interlude from our Writing Fundamentals series in order to come back to our book club series. And today we are discussing Sometimes the Magic Works, Lessons from Writing Life by Terry Brooks. If you never heard of Terry Brooks before, we're going to give you a quick rundown about who he is. Um, he is a second wave fantasy author. So he's the generation of authors that came after, after Tolkien. Um, he's written a ton of books, mostly in the fantasy genre. If you're familiar with um, the Shannara Chronicles TV show, that was based on um, some of his books from the world of Shannara. He's also written a trilogy called Word in the Void, as well as a series of six books called um, Magic Kingdom, and those are kind of the big three. Um, recently, he started to um, branch out into uh, other um, fantasy markets, as well as a little bit of science fiction. So, we're going to talk about his memoir about writing. Yeah, I love this memoir. This is the second time I've read it. I think the first time was also on your recommendation. Um, but he talks a lot about like writing versus publishing, where he says writers seek to write while authors seek publication. Mm -hmm. And when it comes, we'll talk more about writing versus publication, but he put, love puts a capital L as one of the biggest factors of success in publishing. So, like... You can become better at writing through your own power, but publishing is just kind of a crapshoot. Yeah, he shared... So, Terry Brooks' debut novel landed on the New York Times bestseller list, and it stayed there for five months, which was, sh like, earth-shattering for industry professionals because at the time, people believed that um, Lord of the Rings was kind of a flash in the pan, that it was successful because it was Tolkien, and not because people wanted to read fantasy. So the fact that his debut novel, first of all, got onto, onto the New York Times bestsellers list, and it stayed there, and it was a trendsetter for the broader fantasy industry, um, he actually attributes to luck and how the timing was just right and the right people got a hold of his manuscript for him to, to basically launch his career. And I think that's something that's really important to remember for those of our listeners who are going the traditional publishing route is that there is so much luck involved. And if you don't succeed, you just got to keep rolling the dice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really like – this is a writing podcast. And when we talk about publishing, let's talk more about the writing side. I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but he says writing is a craft that can be improved. Yeah. And I think he has a lot of really good – advice for how to improve your writing so do you want to delve into this yeah i think the first thing to keep in mind is that when he talks about writing he says that it is a form of work and that it is going to require some kind of effort on your part in order to improve which i think is something that is good to keep in mind when you are striving to hone your craft if you're writing for your own personal enjoyment that's something else um, but when you're writing to, when you're writing and trying to craft the best story that you can, there is a lot of effort and work that goes into making it so that it can be the best that it can, and so that you can be the best writer you can. Yeah, absolutely. One way he talks about getting better at writing is outlining your work, and we've talked about like planting versus planning on this show. We have talked to no end about the pros and cons of each process. But Terry, Terry Brooks is very much like, 
big believer in the eyeliner. You can avoid writing each other's corners. You will stick your landings better. Meaning that the ending will be a more cohesive than if you're pantsing to the very end. Yes, exactly. And he just talks about how if like he mentions all these other writers who don't believe in outlining, like Stephen King and like Anne Lamont, mm-hmm. like and he's like, yeah, they say they don't like outlining because they don't want to tell the same story twice. But he's like, outlining means your work is going to be better because he does an outline, a first draft, and then one rewrite, mm-hmm. as opposed to endless rewrites, which is what most pantsing writers do. Right. Right, and it, I think it's one of those things that it's one of those things that's a valuable perspective. I wouldn't say that it is a a must. Yes, it is not a hard and fast rule. There, are, I would say there are no hard and fast rules in writing, but there are some. But the whole point of being a good writer is knowing your rules so you can break them. Yeah. So, speaking of rules, let's talk about three more of his rules. The first one is the twenty-four hour rule. Um, which is this concept that you don't put an idea into your like your commonplace book or your second brain, which we've talked about in a prior um, episode. You don't put it in there until it has stuck around in your brain for 24 hours, which I think is so intriguing because oftentimes we have this, this compulsion to write down our ideas as soon as we get them. And he says, no, 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 no. What you want to do is you want to wait and see which of those ideas are sticky which one of those ideas stick around um, for long enough for that 24-hour period because then you know that those ideas are actually valuable and they are feasible. Yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking a lot about generating ideas, and maybe we should do an episode on this on, like, how to generate your ideas. We've kind of done it in the past. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, I want to do a challenge where I come up with a new novel idea every day for 30 days, and the goal is not to come up with, like, usable novel ideas. (laughs) The goal is to just come up with ideas and, like, get my brain into a creative headspace. Right. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, some more rules uh, Terry Brooks has. I keep wanting to say Terry Pratchett. <laughs> and that's just not right. They're both great writers, but yeah, and different. Very different. Um, but some more rules Terry Brooks has is even fantasy must be grounded and relatable to the real world. Mm-hmm. And you've probably heard the discussions of high fantasy versus low fantasy, where low fantasy is like portal fantasy, is like totally related to our world, whereas high fantasy is something totally different. Yep. But like even authors who write high fantasy, like Brandon Sanderson, their work is so relatable to the real world. Like, mm-hmm. if you look at like the different races in like the Way of Kings series, you can like see, oh, this race is based off like this Earth race, mm. like. I was reading an analysis of this a couple weeks ago. I was like, oh, the Hodazians are like Mexicans. And mm. I was like, fascinating. I've never thought about this before. Mm. Uh, because he does it in such a way that, like, it's not obviously a connection, but mm-hmm. it is so relatable to the real world. So that's something super important. Right. And I think another way that high fantasy can be relatable to the real world is making sure that your people are people and that they are concerned with the things that people are concerned about. Yeah. So thinking about what motivates people. They're motivated by their families, their relationships. They're motivated by their, like, the institutions that they're a part of and the cultures that they're a part of. Those sorts of things drive conflict. Um, I am not, I have never met anybody in my life who is, like, convinced that they will single-handedly save the world. Um, but we kind of have that fixation on the on the savior character inside of um, inside of our fantasy stuff, um, which would be going against this other this rule that um, 
Brooks has put forward for, for fantasy writers in general, but it's applicable to all forms of writing. Yeah, absolutely. The third rule we're talking about is everything must advance the story in some way. Like, you can't just not advance your story. Like, he has this really good equation, and I didn't put it in the show notes, but it's like, motion equals change, and without change, there is no story. Yes. Or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just like, that's important. And you went in conflict a second ago, and there's a note you just wrote on the show notes, I saw the note I wanted, uh, where you were talking about, like, you need conflict in the world, but you don't want to have too much conflict or, like, too much trouble, which can be unbelievable, so you have to, like, balance your conflict. Yeah. Which, like, we've all, like, read that book that... Everything is going wrong. Yeah, I was, like, trying to think of a specific example, but I those books don't stay in my mind because they're not good and I don't finish them. I would say The Poppy War... Okay. has a lot of stuff that goes wrong. I feel like once you start getting into grimdark fantasy, it starts to you start moving in that direction of yeah. everything is horrible, everything is wrong kind of thing. Yeah. I personally don't like grimdark. Um yeah, I and I get grimdark. I get the sense that uh Terry Brooks doesn't either. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, take that with a grain of salt. If you love grimdark, maybe this advice isn't isn't applicable. If you're looking for more of like the adventure story, the the high fantasy kind of thing, take note. Yeah, absolutely. He goes to like a lot of rules for writing in this book, and we didn't. We're not going through all of them. I think he has like the twenty four hour rule, then he has like these two rules that we just talked about, and he has like ten more rules, and we're not going to go all over all ten of the rules. But I think <laughs> rule number eight of that is do not bore the reader. If you're bored, they're bored. Yeah, I mean that. That makes sense to me. I feel like that's a very common, very common thought inside of writing, and I think it's true. Yeah, I agree. I we've talked about this on the show before. I can't remember which episode it was, but we're like, you have to be interested in writing what you're writing, and it has to be fun for you, or else it's not fun for your reader. Right. Um. And last rule he talks about is write for yourself, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Is I want to stop creating solely for publication because mm-hmm. I got into that headspace for a little bit that I was like I just need to publish my next book mm-hmm. and I'm just like wait I want to write to get better not to get published mm-hmm. even though getting published is, is like nice but I mean we all want we all want money this is true we live in a capitalist hellscape <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> so he so those are kind of the highlights of what he talks about as far as the writing craft is concerned. Yeah. I found some of his thoughts about publications really interesting just because he kind of became a star overnight with his um, with his debut. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that he talked a lot about his experience with writing novelizations of movies. Yes. Um, and the first one that he wrote was, I think it was for a sequel to um, the film Hook. And it was, like... Uh, Hook was the sequel to Peter Pan. Yes, yes. He was writing the novelization for for Hook. And it was, like, the most awful experience that he had with other creatives ever. Mm -hmm. Where it was, like, he was... Like, he flew out to the production set to, like, talk to the screenwriter and to try and figure out, like, what kind of his vision was. But the screenwriter wouldn't talk to him. They sent, like, some kind of underling to kind of babysit them for the day and it was just I was really frustrated reading that story I was like oh my goodness 
why wouldn't you give me the tools that I need to succeed? And so he swore off writing these uh, these novelizations until George Lucas approached him to write the novelization for The Phantom Menace. And say what you will about The Phantom Menace, the novelization is actually pretty good, considering the source material. So if you're, you know, if you like Star Wars and you like Terry Brooks, reading his novelization of The Phantom Menace is, I think, is worth your time. Yeah, awesome. He also talks about how your brand as an author impacts what you can expect from sales, so this is more in the publication sphere. Yes. Where he just talks about, I'm trying to remember exactly what he says about it, um, but this point is really relevant today as media universes become like more and more common, like we think of like the Marvel Universe, the MCU, a Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes. We think about... I wish it would just die. I hate Marvel so much. <laughs> However, someone in my feedback, my capstone class the other day, they were like, yeah, this feels like you're straight out of a Marvel movie. I'm like, is this an insult? <laughs> <laughs> um, to him, probably not. Or her. Yeah. Or I, them. I think it was meant to be a compliment. There you go. Like, I mean, it's fair. Yeah. Um, I think... If I remember correctly, when I was reading this, he was talking about it in the context of when he moved from, when he went from Shannara to writing um, Magic Kingdom because yeah. they're not they're not connected, and even though they feel very similar, um, they are quite distinct. And what he found was that the readers who found him and loved him for Shannara were not as willing to move over to Magic Kingdom as they were to just wait for the next um, Shannara book. And the same thing happened again when he started writing Word in the Void because it was very different from Shannara because Word in the Void is urban fantasy. And it has, I would say that it has more um, Christocentric themes than the um, than the Shannara books do, although they are present. I think they're just less obvious. Um, and so that was something that I think as writers we need to keep in mind is that the brand influences how you can expect your sales to go. Not necessarily that you should censor yourself and be like, I'm not going to publish this, but part of that managing expectations of like, if I'm going to, if my readers know me for this, only a portion of them are going to follow me to to this. Yeah, absolutely. Like the idea of the niche is very true. Yes. Like, I have defined my niche as, like, fairy tale retellings and queer stories, mm -hmm. and often an overlap of the two, so people can, like, expect one of those two from me. But, like, people who love my, like, first novel, Alice in Wonderland, like, retellings, I don't expect them all to love, like, my space pirate space <laughs> opera. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you mentioned this earlier about how media u universes are becoming more and more common, and I think, like, the, the main person that I think of encapsulates this is Lee Bardugo yes. because she's been writing in the Grishaverse for like years now and when I looked through her Goodreads listings she has only published two books outside of the Grishaverse like it's all it's all connected it's all the same thing um you could point to other successful writers like Sarah J Moss was the other one that I was looking at where even if the universes are different the brand is still there which is to put it crassly fairy smut like, yes. that's her brand, and that's what she writes. And it doesn't really matter how you reskin it. It's just, it. it's not just, but it is fairy smut. And you can expect fairy smut from Sarah fairy J. Moss. Smut. Yeah, and I think another common universe, just like point out again, is like Brandon Sanderson, who has like yes, the Cosmere. Yes, the Cosmere. And he has like 18 or like 30 books planted or something. Yeah. And it's just like, it's a lot. Yeah. 
But, like, his fans, like, his, like, secret novels that he's releasing right now all take place, at least the first one takes place in the Cosby Habit, so I'm the second one. But You're further along than me. <laughs> I only, I'm only, like, 60% of the way through, trust me, MLT. Um, it's, I have been so busy. I've been reading for school and school alone. Um, but, yeah. We are running up to time. Is there any last thoughts we have from Finland's The Magic Works? I do love the chapters that he writes from talking about the perspectives and the wisdom that he's gained from his grandson. Keep in mind, this was published at, like, the beginning of the 2000s, so his yeah. grandson's probably, like, our age now. Um, but just the how he talks about the things that he learned from his grandson's imagination and the way that he approached life as being valuable to writing and to life, I thought was really touching. So when you're reading it, I would look out for those two those two chapters. I think it's called Life According to Hunter. Those are two yes. really good chapters to look out for. I fully agree. Um, more on that, I just love, like, I was going to talk about the same thing. So took the words right out of my mouth, but <laughs> Hunter says to Terry Brooks, he's like, Grandpa, we're pretending. And yes. that was, like, so impactful. And I'm like, yeah, we're pretending. Like, it is okay to just be silly, and it's okay for, like, they were playing, like, a zoo game, and they're like, it's okay for the big cats and the zebras to be in the same pen. Like, because they're nice. Because they're nice, exactly. Anyways, this has been Quid Pro's Quo. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next week as we continue our Writing Fundamentals series. Quid Pro's Quo is hosted by DC Winters and CK Jensen. If you like this episode, be sure to leave us a rating. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at quidprosquo at gmail.com. For more episodes, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts.